0: You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks.
1: And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 21st.
0: Many U.S. communities of color experience disproportionate exposure to environmental hazards, including pollution and climate-related disasters, as well as a lack of investments in green spaces, tree cover, and other neighborhood amenities. These injustices are not accidental. They are the result of a long history of racist policies and practices like redlining. Redlining occurred when the federal government's Homeowners Loan Corporation began grading communities based on their risk for home loan lending, often deeming neighborhoods with predominantly black and immigrant populations as the most risky places to give a home loan. Redlining is now an illegal practice, but its effects have persisted over decades. In the lead-up to Earth Day tomorrow, Rand released two short films showing how community engagement and data-driven solutions have addressed the consequences of redlining, created more equitable environmental policies and programs, and helped to deliver environmental justice. The films highlight two communities, Elizabeth, New Jersey, and the Choyas Creek Watershed in San Diego, California. In Elizabeth, community leaders are implementing holistic, grassroots solutions to improve air quality and access to urban agriculture. In Choyas Creek, decades of community organizing helped to revitalize a polluted and neglected watershed and increase equitable access to public parks. These and other efforts across the country demonstrate that environmental justice is possible when the government, nonprofits, community organizations, and individual residents work together. We'll leave you with the words of Julie Corayas, a resident of the Barrio Logan neighborhood in the Choyas Creek watershed, who I interviewed about growing up in Choyas Creek and life in her neighborhood and her work on the watershed cleanup project and the impact that it's had on the community.
1: I'm inspired by my children. Um, I have this vision of my grandchildren playing in a, in a green Logan um, and getting to see those danzantes and getting the culture and breathing clean air. Um, we deserve, we deserve all of that and, um, and I think that we're in this really great space in the movement where it's starting to come to fruition.
0: You can hear more from Julie and many others involved with the environmental justice efforts in San Diego and New Jersey by watching our short films on RAND.org or on RAND's YouTube channel.
1: Before the pandemic, more than 95% of outpatient mental health services in the U.S. were in-person. Today, that figure has declined to about 50% for conditions like depression and anxiety. This shift is in large part because of the pandemic-related increase in both the demand for and the supply of telemedicine services for mental health treatment. But there may be a potential backslide coming, explains Rand's Ryan McBain. If the policies that expanded telehealth access expire when the COVID-19 public health emergency ends next month, then the benefits of mental health care could begin to disappear for millions of Americans. For example, Medicaid reimbursement for audio-only telehealth became available in many states during the pandemic. Medicaid is the largest U.S. insurer of people with serious mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And because serious mental illnesses undermine stable employment, individuals with these conditions are less likely to afford or use smartphones and the internet. Audio-only telehealth helped solve for this. But Medicaid reimbursement for these services is set to expire in a lot of states at the end of the public health emergency. If telehealth policies such as these begin to unravel, it would be deeply concerning, McBain says. A lack of affordable, accessible mental health care in the U.S. underlies serious challenges, from catastrophically high teen suicide rates to rampant homelessness in major cities, to deaths of despair associated with the opioid crisis. But McBain remains optimistic. He notes that mental health care is one of the few areas where politicians have consistently worked across the aisle. He hopes such cooperation will continue because the clock is ticking.
0: Some experts argue that the U.S. should curb its European commitments and focus all its resources on the threat that China poses in the Indo-Pacific. While this idea is bold and thought-provoking, says Rand's Michael Mazar, acting on it would be self-defeating. To start, Europe and the Indo-Pacific is an apples and oranges comparison. The military needs of the two regions are quite different, The Indo-Pacific primarily taxes U.S. air and sea assets, while Europe calls for more muscular land power. Further, the U.S. should not be judging this trade-off against some mythical ability to fight two massive simultaneous wars. Rather, it should be examining whether it can sustain a credible peacetime posture in both theaters. Those who advocate for disengaging from Europe often cite excessive or needless spending. But Mazar says they're ignoring an uncomfortable fact. The only way to save significantly on European commitments would be for the U.S. to take the extreme and risky step of leaving NATO, a step recommended by few, if any, critics of U.S. support for Europe. But leaving the alliance would be necessary to make any big spending cuts. Consider, for example, if the U.S. were to seek merely to reduce its presence in Europe, but stay in NATO. In doing so, it would still need to maintain sufficient forces and capabilities to fulfill its NATO obligations, and the U.S. defense bill would not shrink by much. It's also worth pointing out that the U.S. derives diverse benefits from its NATO membership, benefits that contribute directly to its global military effectiveness, including in the Indo-Pacific. Finally, close coordination with Europe is critical to America's efforts to oppose China and its campaign to dominate the rules of the international system. The U.S. cannot do it alone. European support will be necessary to protect shared interests related to many important issues, from climate and cyber threats to artificial intelligence. Here's how Mazar sums up his argument. "...stripping or even significantly downgrading U.S.-European commitments would validate the grim picture that China and Russia now paint of a United States that is pitilessly self-interested and transactional, and would severely undermine America's painstaking attempts to build a reputation as that rare great power that offers something to the world other than naked ambition." The country's chief competitive advantage in the contest with China is its dominant global network of friends and allies. Now is the time to strengthen those coveted ties, in Europe and elsewhere.
1: Let's stay with China for a moment. Rand Scott Savitz wrote this week about what Beijing might be planning. He looked to history for insight noting that almost exactly 100 years ago, the United States started what was then called a quote, splendid little war against Spain. America's objective was to demonstrate its rise through a brief victorious conflict. Today, as China's global strength grows, it could be contemplating a similar showcase of power. Beijing may believe that a quick and decisive military victory could help reinforce popular beliefs that the Communist Party has made China proud, strong, and wealthy, and bolster the perception that China is not only an economic power of the first rank, but also a military one. China could focus on two possible targets for its hypothetical splendid little war, says Savitz, India or Vietnam. Neither country has an alliance with the U.S., and U.S. intervention on behalf of either would be extremely unlikely. China could use its massive ground-centric forces to overrun either country's land border, while also testing its burgeoning air, maritime, cyber, space, and electronic warfare capabilities. How might the U.S. prevent such a conflict from occurring? There's little Washington can do to directly influence China's calculus, Savitt says, other than being visibly prepared to impose sanctions and reminding China that wars have a tendency to drag on longer than expected. But India and Vietnam could deter China by taking steps to demonstrate their own defense capabilities and willingness to fight through exercises, military investments, and diplomatic messaging.
0: Insomnia, which affects about 1 in 10 people, has serious consequences for mental and physical health, relationships, and productivity. It also has economic costs. A recent Rand Europe study looked at insomnia in 15 of the world's richest economies and found that it could cost them billions of dollars, ranging from $1.8 in Portugal to $207.5 billion in the U.S., These costs are primarily because of the toll that insomnia takes on workplace productivity. The same report found that the average person would trade 14% of their annual salary to be insomnia-free. That's more than individuals say that they would pay to avoid the effects of stroke, asthma, or arthritis, but less than what they would trade to avoid the effects of heart failure, cancer, or diabetes. It's clear that insomnia has profound and far reaching effects, but the authors of the study note that reducing those effects isn't just about getting more shut eye. In fact, the last thing that an individual with insomnia needs to hear is that they should sleep more, as this may just exacerbate their anxiety around the problem. Quality and quantity should be parallel goals when it comes to sleep. But the good news is that there are a variety of evidence based treatments. On you.
1: That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org podcast. We'll see you next week. Rand is a nonprofit institution that helps improve
0: policymaking through research and analysis.